right, Matthew 28. So a little bit of a, little bit of a warning for us. I don't even know what I'm saying here exactly, but we're going to look at one phrase towards the end of the Great Commission this morning, and it is, it is so unbelievably mysterious and beautiful and powerful. All week long, I've just felt the reality of our insufficiency to talk about this or understand it like in 30 minutes. Like, no, no, way, we, no way we can do it. In fact, I remember seven or eight years ago, we came to this passage of scripture, and then as a church, we took 25 straight Sundays trying to unpack this reality. Uh, every fall, when we bring leaders in to disciple them and to send them out to start churches, we, we spend 10 concentrated hours talking about the reality of what we're going to try to just, just open the, the can on just a little bit this morning. And so um, even this morning, as I was trying to put together the slides of like what scriptures we should look at, I'm like, I don't even know how to do, like how do we even organize this? And so I just put a bunch of scriptures together and I gave those to Jonathan in the back and I'm like, dude, I'm not sure which ones we're going to hit. Like, good luck, buddy. Like, and, and, uh, and so what I'm, what I'm believing is that the Spirit of God, and I, I'll say this lightly, I believe he wants to do immeasurably more than we have time or understanding or the wisdom to obtain. And I, I just wanna encourage you this morning, if there's, if there's any place where the weight of the Lord or the weight of the scriptures just kinda sits down on you, I wanna encourage you, don't do what we so often do as humans, and that is try to get comfortable again by distracting ourselves or moving out of it or trying to understand. I, I believe that the Lord wants to do something this morning in the place of mystery. I believe he wants to do something in the place of mystery. And it's, it's available to anybody that's willing to sit with Jesus in that under, uncomfortable place of mystery. And so I'm gonna talk until we run out of time and then we'll take communion and we'll worship and we'll go home and then you get to do all the fun work of really just sitting with the Lord in the secret place in the scriptures and just going, okay, God, what do you have for me? Does that make sense? Okay, so um, that's what we're gonna do. I, you know, I don't remember exactly how this started stirring in me, but sometime when I was probably around 12 or 13, I, I, I became a Jeep guy. I don't know why, but I'm just like, and if you're a Jeep guy, you know, you know. It's just, it's just you know, or girl, you know, like we're inclusive here. So it's like, if, if you like Jeeps. But I just, I'm like, I love Jeeps and I wanna have a Jeep and I, I, maybe one day I can own a Jeep and uh, save up my money for it and, wasn't ever sure if I'd have one, but I remember on Valentine's Day, my senior year in high school, I was at my job and my dad calls me and he says, hey, um, have you seen that red Jeep that's just down the street for sale? And I'm like, do you even know me? Like, <laughs> of course I've seen it. I've prayed for that thing. I've coveted that thing. I thought about stealing that thing. Like, <laughs> love that Jeep. And, and he's like, hey, do you wanna get off work? And, and like, when you get off work, you wanna go test drive it? I'm like, forget getting off work. I'm gonna call my boss. Hey, family emergency. I've got to leave. And so I called him right then and, and I left. I remember meeting my dad and we get, we get in this Jeep and I can still remember the roads we test drove that thing down. And even as I'm test driving it, I'm like, I don't know if we have the money to get this. Like, but man, it's fun to drive it. So we're test driving this Jeep and, and my dad says, hey, I came and drove this thing earlier and I talked to the owner and all of a sudden my heart's just racing. Because have you ever had one of those moments where you're like, oh, this thing that I didn't know I could have, maybe I'm gonna get it. And he's like, I think he's gonna make a deal with us. I think we can, we can bring it home today. And, 
if you want to see a grown man cry, just like <laughs> tears of joy. So get this Jeep, love this Jeep, probably love that Jeep too much, you know, like an idolatrous relationship with it almost. And drive that Jeep off to college. And I remember at the end of my freshman year, right before I'm getting ready to come home for the summer, um, one of the most tragic moments in my life happened, that Jeep broke down. And so she, she breaks down, and <laughs> we had a relationship, it was she, and, and uh, Jeep breaks down, and this was before Yelp, and before, I mean, I'm old, this is 23 years ago, and uh, Jeep breaks down, and so I just have it towed to the nearest mechanic where she had broken down, and um, spoiler alert, that's a terrible strategy, like, like never just have your car towed to a random mechanic. So my car goes, my Jeep goes to this mechanic, and they say, hey, bad news, it's the transmission, but we can rebuild it for $700, which for you may not seem like a lot in 2023, and if you have rich parents, you're like, what's the big deal? But like for me, that was a ton of money. They might as well have said $25,000. And we're thinking, how am I gonna get this thing fixed? And so uh, I spend all of my money, I borrow money from friends and family, get this thing fixed. I'm driving home in all my glory, love has been reunited. Driving back in, in my Jeep, uh, 600 miles back to Charleston, South Carolina, and on the way back, I go to shift into fourth gear and it won't shift and it breaks down again. And I remember once again getting it towed to mechanic real close to where I'd broken down and they said, hey, we don't know where you took this thing or what you paid, but they ripped you off. And not only did they not fix it, they, they put old parts in, charged you new prices, and it's gonna cost you a lot more than you originally paid to get this thing completely rebuilt. And so I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you come face to face with something that's broken that you care about, and you realize there's just nothing I can do to fix it. And I know it sounds silly, but I was just like devastated. And so I, I call one of my best friends, he and I grew up, I won't say his name because he's in the room and it will embarrass him, and that's the price of being my friend. You get mentioned in sermons sometimes whether you want to or not, and I called my friend that I'd grown up with that's amazing on cars, and he can fix anything. I said, hey, dude, what should I do? And he said, you should just fix it. And I'm like, it's as if you don't know me at all. Like, I'm like, I can't fix this thing. So complicated. So he says, drive to AutoZone when you get home. They sell a book. This is before YouTube when you can just watch videos on how to fix things. He goes, they sell, a, they sell a book, buy a book. It'll tell you everything you need to know about how to fix the Jeep. And so... Because I was desperate, I get home, I go to AutoZone, I buy that book, I read through it. And have you ever had one of those moments where you read through the instructions and you feel dumber and more incapable than you did when you started? <laughs> and so all of a sudden I feel dumber and I feel more incapable than I had when I started. And I call him, I'm like, dude, I cannot fix this thing. And this was a game-changing moment. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, let's pick a few days. He says, how about I come over? and I'll stay with you, and I will help you get it fixed until the job's done. And it was one of those moments where my confidence swelled, because basically what he's saying is, I'll come over and fix it. You can give me the tools, and uh, you can keep me company while I fix it, but he goes, hey, I, I wanna come over, and I'll stay till the job is done, and, and I was thinking about that this week, because I go, nothing had changed. I, you know, I had more information, but the information hadn't helped me. I had all of this desire to fix that which was broken, but desire was not enough to get me through the challenge that was in front of me. The place of hope and the place of confidence came because somebody more capable, somebody more brilliant, somebody smarter was willing to say, hey, I will come and I will be with you, I will sit with you, and I will stay with you until the job is done. The, the, the gift came not just through a book or through my knowledge, it came through the presence of somebody who loved me enough to stick in there until the thing was done. Now, I kept thinking about this week as I was thinking about the Great Commission. We've been talking about the Great Commission, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. 
This, this little sermon that he gives after his resurrection, right before he returns to his heavenly father, five short verses that are pregnant with eternal possibility and reality. And, and you read these verses, and the verses are, I wanna be really clear on this, they are an invitation to his disciples to lean into an impossible task. The story of scripture, God has created all things, they're perfect, sin enters the world and breaks them, the world is a mess, relationships are a mess, creation is a mess, nations are a mess, and then Jesus shows up into the mess, fully God, fully human, he comes into the mess, not from a distance, and he begins to renew and redeem and recreate and restore and to bless all things, and for three years he spends a lot of time with 12 really ordinary people. And then towards the end of his ministry, 33 years old, he is wrongfully accused, brutally beaten, nailed to a cross for the sins of humanity. A sinless man dies a sinner's death. On the third day, he is raised back to life by the power of God. And then Jesus stands before them, fully God, fully man, fully glorified, and he looks at his disciples and he says, I wanna invite you into this impossible task of getting your hands on the brokenness of the world and helping bring it back to the renewal of all things. And I just wanna be clear, like the disciples, when they would have heard this, there, there, there's no part of them that would have gone, oh yeah, we got it, thanks Jesus. We can do this. <laughs> just listen to what we've been reading. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16, it says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. They couldn't get their minds around this reality that God had become man and that God had died and now God had been raised back to life. And what do you do with this great mystery? Some worship, some doubt. Jesus goes, but all of you have a part to play in the renewal of all things. You all get a play. No spiritual class system, you all get a play. Verse 18, and Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He goes, I'm completely in charge. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago. Everywhere you go, he goes, I have the authority to bring about restoration and forgiveness and redemption and renewal. Verse 19, so this is what I want you to do. So therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And we've used this definition for discipleship over the last few weeks. A disciple is not just a convert, not just somebody that shows up at a church service. A disciple is somebody that's following Jesus is being actively transformed by Jesus and has committed their, way, their life to the ways, words, and works of Jesus. And so Jesus goes, hey, here's what I want you to do. He goes, I've raised from the dead. I'm in charge. The, the world is still a mess. And he goes, and I want to send you out in my authority to make disciples. He goes, I want you to go. I want you to make disciples of all nations and then this is what we talked about last week. He goes, helping people go all in, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. I'm just telling you, sometimes we make the scriptures so two-dimensional, so black and white, so just kind of like VBSified, whatever that means. Like we look at the scriptures and we go, I bet you the disciples were like, yeah, we got this. I'm telling you, the disciples, they have all the challenges that we have. They had financial issues, they had emotional issues, they had moral issues, they had family issues, they had time constraints, they had intellectual challenges. I just imagine, 
These 11 guys are sitting here hearing Jesus give this great commission and they're like, what's this guy thinking? How in the world do we lean into this impossible task? Jesus says, I want you to go. And they're like, where? To the ends of the earth. And Jesus is like, don't you know we've never traveled more than 60 miles from the place that we've been born? The car hasn't been invented. There's no such thing as airplanes, no internet. Like, how do we get from where we are to the ends of the earth? Jesus doesn't give them that instruction. He goes, I'm just calling you to do it. He says, I'm calling you to go. And not just share good news, but to, to bring people all the way into the triune love of God, to, to baptize them in, to get them to abandon their old worldview, and to step into the, the life of God and then teach them to obey everything. I think sometimes the task is so impossible, we tend to water it down and try to make it smaller. And I'm just telling you, they would have heard this. And I can just imagine all the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, where are we getting the money for that? And are we giving 10 hours a week to this or 20 hours a week? Or do you want us to start a small group? Hey, will my wife leave me if, if I go to another country? Or, hey, Jesus, don't you know all of our moral issues? You know, just a few days ago, we abandoned you and one of us had you killed and all of us were scared to death and all of our views on you are still in process and wrong. And Jesus, don't you know that we're scared to death? And don't you know that I'm worried about the future of my children? And don't you know I don't know how to do this? And I just imagine somewhere in the heart of the disciples would have been this glorious collision of their desire to see a broken world made new and their inability to make that happen in their own strength. And here's what I love. In that moment, Jesus does not just give them a manual. Hey, here's the book. He doesn't give them just a to-do list. He doesn't give them a rousing speech and go, hey guys, we can do this. You're so awesome. You're so beautiful. Guys, the, the heart and the hope of the Great Commission, I believe, comes in the last part of it. Look at the end of verse 20. This would have been good news to their ears. The impossible task, the impossible task is rooted in this glorious promise. He goes, and surely I am what? Somebody shout it out. And surely I am. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't tell you how long to read. <laughs> Some of you are like, is it one word? Is it a whole sentence? If you had the spirit of God, you would have known. Um, <laughs> just kidding. He goes, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I want to take just a few minutes to unpack, it, please hear me on this if you tune me out. I wanna take a few minutes to try to unpack something that will take you a billion years to understand. We will still be working this reality out into all of eternity. Jesus, what does it mean that you are with us always to the end of the age? What does that mean? <laughs> And how does that practically undo us and release us into all of the things that you've made us for? See, if you don't understand this one little phrase, I am with you always to the end of the age, the Great Commission, you either tackle it with your legalism, like I've gotta do something great for God, or you just give up on it out of laziness because you go, I could never do that. But when you understand the significance 
of this one promise, I really do believe that all of a sudden the Great Commission is no more attainable in your own strength, but it becomes so dynamic and so beautiful and so raw and so real, you will give your life to this. It doesn't matter what you do for your career, this is your calling to join Jesus in the renewal of all things by making disciples to the ends of the earth. But you just can't do it, I can't do it, we can't do it on our own. And Jesus goes, good news, it's the phone call we're all waiting for. How about I show up and help you fix that thing? And I will not leave until I come back and I finish the job. Guys, it's so glorious. I don't know if you notice this word or if you write in your Bibles, but go back to verse 20 and I just encourage you to underline that word surely. Or some of your Bibles say behold. Or say the word low if you have like an old King James Bible. And, and, and there's this temptation, you read that and you just skip right past it. But I'm convinced there's not a single word in scripture that's wasted. And this word is so significant, you see it over and over and over in the scripture. It comes out of Jesus' mouth uh, over and over and it's almost like this exclamation point where, where Jesus goes, hey, I want you to stop. I know I just told you all this stuff we're gonna do to the ends of the nation. Stop, stop, hey, behold, low, surely, wait. It's almost like he's waving his arms. He's like, I don't want you to miss this. I don't, I don't want you to miss what's getting ready to come. It's like if you're in a car and you're driving, maybe you're driving in the mountains. And this morning, this image was just hitting me as I was meditating on this scripture. It's like you're driving through the mountains with your friends and there's tree coverage on both sides, but you come around a corner. And have you ever come around a corner in the mountains and all of a sudden there's one of those lookouts, you know, like where it pulls over and you can pull the car over? And you can get out and you can take a photograph. And then, and then you're just like kind of beholding the beauty. You're just taking it in. You have an option when you come face to face with things that are beautiful. You can, you can just drive right by it. Like, oh, cool, kids, look at the mountains. <laughs> Back in the trees. You can get out and you can take a picture on your phone. You know, I got a flip phone, I pull it out. It's like half a megapixel and I'm like, you know, trying to get a picture. Have you ever noticed though, it doesn't matter how good your camera is, it never captures the depth of the beauty. It doesn't matter how good of a photographer you are. I believe we're not just invited to drive past it or to sit and admire it, but to literally park the car, get out and climb into it, to adventure into it. And Jesus goes, hey, I want you to behold this. I want you to drink this in. I want you to think about this. Guys, I can't do it for you. Nobody can do it for you. you, you you've, got to, you've got to dig in. He goes, here's what I want you to behold. He goes, I will be with you. I am with you. That's actually what he says. I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Jesus being with them was really significant, guys. Hey, the whole story of the Bible and I bet most of us don't actually believe this because your experience might not line up with it, but it doesn't mean it's not true. The whole story of the Bible is a story of a God doing whatever needs to be done in order for him to get closer to his people. It starts with God in the garden, and then sin enters the world and messes it up, and then we see the glory of God on Mount Sinai. We see him in the, the pillar of fire and in the cloud leading the, uh, the Israelites through the desert. And then you see him in the tent of meeting and then you see him in the temple that Solomon built and then you get to the gospels and all of a sudden the glory of God is contained in the life of this man named Jesus, fully God, fully man. And then on the day of Pentecost, right after this story that we're reading this morning, 
the spirit of God is poured out. So God is no longer just in the garden or just on a mountain or just in the fire or just in the wind or just in the tent or just in the temple. He's in the people of God. It's a story of a God that keeps getting closer and closer and closer till one day it culminates when Jesus returns in the flesh and puts his feet on the earth and once again, the spirit of God within us and upon us is face to face with the God that's before us. He's with us. He's among us. And the disciples would have had no understanding for a type of discipleship that was even possible apart from the presence of God. They would have never thought, okay, Jesus, you're going back to heaven. I guess we'll just go to church for like 2,000 years and try not to sin. They would have been like, how can we do this if you're not here? Jesus had just told them before this, he goes, hey, I'm getting ready to go away for a little bit, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. One third of heaven's resources are going to come and live inside of your body. One third of the Trinity, just listen to this church, I wish I could explain it, it's such a mystery. One third of the Trinity will live inside of your body forever and ever and ever, helping you think like Jesus, love like Jesus, lead like Jesus, move like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus, be forgiven like Jesus, walk in power like Jesus. He goes, this is the key to discipleship, is that God not only taught you and blessed you and gave you a book, which I'm so grateful for the book, he didn't just give us a to-do list, he goes, I am giving you myself forever and ever and ever, and this is for your good. It's for your benefit. It's for your benefit. Guys, one of the great scandals of the gospel, one of the great scandals of the good news is not that you wanna be with God and you have a way into heaven. The great scandal, I believe the great news, is that God wanted to be with us. Guys, this news could just like we could just sit with that. The creator, infinite, glorious God wants to be with us. Does he know us? <laughs> Spoiler alert, yes he does. Jesus, all throughout his life and ministry, he was described as the friend of, friend of what? Shout it out, the friend of? The friend of sinners. And he shows up and Jesus goes, hey, we're gonna bring about the renewal, the redemption of this broken place called planet Earth, and we're gonna do this thing together. And here's what I want you to know. I want to be with you. It'll be up on the screen, Mark chapter three, verse 14. Jesus calls the disciples to himself. And I love this moment in Mark chapter three. It says he appointed the 12 that they might what? That they might be with him. Guys, what does it tell you about the infinite heart of God that he wants to dwell with finite sinners? Or later on in John 17, the night that Jesus is crucified, he's praying not just for his disciples that were there with him, he begins praying for us. Look at John chapter 17, verse 24. I love this. This is what Jesus says. He says, Father, I want those that you have given me, what? to be with me where I am. Jesus goes, this is my desire. My desire is perfect, unbroken fellowship, unbroken communion 
with sinful humanity and together we'll put our hands to the problem of bringing about renewal and restoration and forgiveness and redemption. We'll do this work and he says we'll do this as we learn to become and make disciples together. Jesus goes, I'm gonna be with you always. Like you'll never be alone in this. It's an amazing, glorious promise. And I go, but here's a, here's a question. If Jesus, literally, he's giving the Great Commission and he knows he's getting ready to return to heaven, how is this going to come about? <laughs> how were they gonna experience his forever presence? How do we experience his forever presence? He goes, well, I'm gonna send the Spirit of God to live in you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Spent 25 Sundays talking about that idea. No way we're even getting to the top of the surface with this one. But I just want you to hear what Jesus said in John chapter 14. This is as he was walking to the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. It's interesting to me, guys, listen to this. It's interesting that on the night that Jesus was killed, on the morning that Jesus was raised from the dead, and on the day that he returned to heaven, on all three of those significant experiences, the primary subject he wanted to talk with his disciples about was how he was going to be with them through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on their life. In all three of those moments, he just goes, I wanna talk about who it is that I'm sending you. And this is how I'm gonna be with you. John chapter 14, verse 17 through 18, it says, then the spirit of truth, this is Jesus speaking, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he what? For he lives with you and he will what? He will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus goes, the, the same spirit that has been living in me for 33 years, directing every miracle, every teaching, every thought, every action, he goes, the Father is gonna pour the spirit out upon you and within you so you can really be my, my disciple, so you can think how I think, act how I act, live how I live, love how I love. He goes, that's not gonna come about because you're so disciplined or so smart or such a good church-going Christian. He goes, that's gonna come because you're in fellowship with me. Have you guys ever had a friend that was so good the moment they showed up at your house, you just got better? You talked differently, you thought differently? It's one of the great scandals of Jesus' transformative power. He transforms us, not with the list of rules, but with his very presence. He comes in and he says, and I'm gonna send the spirit of God to live in you forever and ever and ever. And I can almost imagine the disciples just objecting just a little bit going, but Jesus, we'd rather have you here in person. <laughs> And you can, you can hear Jesus like wrestling with that in John chapter 16, it won't be on the screen, but John chapter 16, verse seven, Jesus goes, okay, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, let me tell you something. He goes, it's actually to your advantage that I'm going back to the Father so that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell inside of you. Now I know almost none of us believe that. I'm trying really hard to believe that. I wanna believe that. But I'm telling you, if I could see Jesus physically face to face this morning, that's what I long for. But Jesus says, in this current season, as we await the end of the age, it's actually better for you and for the world that I return physically so that the Spirit of God can live in all of you individually and communally so that together we can do more than I could have ever done. And the promise is so glorious and so big, it's hard to even get your mind around, isn't it? He goes, it's to your advantage. But, but you see this with the disciples, right? Were the disciples more courageous when they had the physical Jesus or when they had the indwelling spirit? 
spirit. Peter, on the night that Jesus was crucified, was physically in close enough proximity where he could see Jesus all three times. He denied him. The physical presence of Jesus did not give Peter the courage that he needed to stand in his faith. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out in Peter's life, and now Peter is standing up in front of all of the people that had just crucified Jesus, and Peter is bold. Where did the courage come from? External Jesus or in, indwelling spirit? Indwelling spirit. Did the disciples perform miracles before or after? Did they, did they perform miracles with the, the external Jesus or the indwelling spirit? And guys, I'm not making this up. This is not my teaching. This is not my thought. This is the teaching of Jesus. He goes, it's too your benefit, and he goes, and I'm gonna use you to make disciples to all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything, and they're like, how? How are we gonna do this? He goes, I will be with you always. You're not fixing the Jeep by yourself. I'm in you, I'm with you, I'm never leaving. I will put my spirit in you forever. And I believe this is a truth that if the church of Jesus Christ in North America would gain hold of again. I'm not, I'm not just talking about like the crazy, like we need to be wild for God. I'm just saying like if you would believe that one third of the Trinity dwells in your body forever and ever and ever. Guys, it will change your parenting. It will change how you live in that college dorm room. It will change the way you think about work. It'll change the way you're facing your divorce. It'll change the way you face your addiction and your heartache and your pain and your struggle. If you believe that God has never left you, has never forsaken you, has never abandoned you, he is nearer than the breath in your lungs. If you would believe that, guys, it changes everything because you don't go out in the world alone. You don't go out in the world um, feeble and powerless, but you walk in the power of the Spirit of God, believing that God can do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. And I go, how is, he, how is he with us through the outpouring of the Spirit? And it begs the question, though, but how can he be in sinners like us? Like, how can he do this? Earlier this week, I was hanging out with my eight-year-old son, and he had no idea what I was teaching on. And I was just asking him, I said, hey, what have you been learning recently in the Word? And he's been in the Old Testament. And he said, I've been learning that sinful people cannot come into the presence of a holy God. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know what story he was reading. He says, tell me about, you know, sinners coming to the face of God at Mount Sinai. And like pretty deep stuff with an eight-year-old. And I said, I said, how come they can't come into the presence of a holy God? He says, because they get exploded by his presence. And I don't know if that's theologically correct or not. I'm, I'm not sure if you get exploded. But what he was beginning to wrestle with is sin. Guys, hear this. This is so key. Sin literally cannot survive in the presence of unrelenting holiness. Sin cannot survive in the presence of unrelenting holiness. So in the presence of holiness, wherever sin is, it is obliterated by the presence of God. So in the Old Testament, the people are coming with sin, and there was nothing that had been done to deal with that sin. And God goes, I wanna be with you, but we've gotta create some distance because my holiness will obliterate the very thing that's overtaken you. My eight-year-old going, how can 
unholy people be in the presence of a holy God? It's a great question. And it's the question that Jesus had just definitively answered before he shared the Great Commission. It was on the cross of Christ where Jesus took every single sin, every bit of perversion, every poor motive, every bit of greed, every foul word, every bad thought, every, every abuse, every place of sexual impropri- uh, um, impropriety, everything you've ever done and everything that's ever been done to you, everything you wish you could forget but it haunts you at night. Jesus said, I wanna take the weight and the reality of all of those things on my shoulders and so Jesus Christ, the son of the living God stretched his arms out on a cross, absorbed the weight of God's holiness on all of your unholiness and on all of my unholiness. And he said, and I'm gonna obliterate it so that you can stand in my presence and be filled with my presence and be marked in my life and walk in my ways. Second Corinthians 5 verse 21, he who knew no sin That means Jesus had no intimate fellowship with sin. He had never had a sinful thought, done a sinful thing. He who knew no sin became sin for us, why? So that we might become the righteousness of God, the dwelling place of God's spirit. And the reason Jesus could give such an impossible task and end it in such a glorious promise was because he knew he would stick around to pay the price so that sinners like us could be filled with the glory of God. And guys, it is so easy to live your whole life in church and to fall short of experiencing the beauty and the weight and the magnitude of what God has put on the table for you. We're so tempted to play it safe, to live in the shallow end of our own strength and our own, like, we can get this done. (laughs) I can make a disciple. No, you can't. (laughs) I can reach the ends of the earth. No, you can't. But Christ in you, the hope of glory, most definitely can and will. But you have, to, you have to go to the end of yourself and it's at the end of ourself in the place of our weakness that we experience the glory and the beauty of this indwelling promise of God within us. I remember when I was in ninth grade and I was five foot one, 105 pounds and I wanted desperately to to make the baseball team, and part of making the baseball team meant we had to, to go get a physical, and then we had to go to this day in the gym, like uh, in the weight room, where it's called a max out day, where you had to do all these exercises, and you had to show how much you could lift, and they would call out your number in front of everybody, and they'd write it on a board, which when you're five foot one, 105 pounds as a dude, not your most exciting day. And I remember going to this max out day, and the guy that had gone just in front of me, you know, all the spring sports, all the athletes are there in the gym, guys and girls, and the guy that had gone before me, he had just crushed it. He had lifted way more weight than I could probably lift now even. And, and uh, he, he pushes up the bench like it was no problem. And then it was my turn to go. And I remember, like, I should have in humility said, take all the weights off. I'm gonna try to do the bar. Like, um, <laughs> that's, that's about where I was. I kid you not. And you can judge me. But, but instead, in my pride, I just thought, maybe the Lord will give me strength. And I kid you not, I just remember praying. I'm like, I'm not gonna take the weights off. And so I lay down on the bench. I close my eyes. And... I just start praying for the spirit of Samson to fill my body. And, <laughs> and I go to lift, and have you ever had one of these moments where you start to push the weight up, and for like half a millisecond, you're like, I think the prayer's been answered. I, I got it, and I lift the weight, and for half a second, I think I have it, and then it just comes crashing down on my chest. And there I am, eyes closed, like just like begging the Lord, making deals with the Lord. 
And I kid you not, there in my distress and my need, the weight slowly but surely just begins to lift. Crazy. And I open my eyes and there's this 10th grade girl from the soccer team. <laughs> it's true. Just... So next sermon is, what happens when God answers prayers in the ways you don't want them answered? But you know, like... But the reality is you can't experience somebody else's strength until you come face to face with your weakness. You can't experience the strength of this promise, God with you forever, God's spirit in you forever, until you allow yourself to come face to face with the reality of your weakness. God, here I am. And as long as you play it safe, as long as you try to be in control, as long as you just try to have life work the way you want it to work, I'm just telling you, you're not giving much room for the spirit of God to move. And Jesus says, here it is. Everything I'm asking you, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. I wanna I want end with four words. I don't have time to teach on them. But maybe you can explore them this week and wrestle with them. Maybe you're sitting here going, how do I get more of the presence of God in my life? Just give you four words. Keep surrendering. Keep abiding. Keep obeying. Keep asking. Surrendering, Acts chapter two. The crowd see the spirit of God poured out on the people. They go, how do we step into this? Jesus says, you don't just believe, but you repent. You turn around because you get baptized and you will receive the fullness of this gift, this promise is for you and all those who will come one day. He goes, you surrender. And guys, I'm just telling you, you cannot walk in the fullness of the spirit of God as long as you're still trying to control the reality of your life. Surrendering. Abiding. Jesus in John 15, verse five, he's talking about the Holy Spirit on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes, if you abide in me, if you stick with me, if you remain in me, if you keep building friendship with me, he goes, I will remain in you and you will bear much fruit. How do we walk in more of the presence of God? We keep surrendering, we keep, obe we keep abiding, we keep obeying. This is what we talked about last week. Obedience and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life are inseparable realities. John chapter 14, I'm not gonna read it, I'm just telling you where to look these things up. Jesus says, if you will obey me, my Father will send the Holy Spirit to live in you forever, and he will not leave you. We keep walking in obedience to Jesus, surrendering, abiding, obeying, and asking. Luke 11 Jesus is talking to a bunch of dads. He goes, you guys are all sinful fathers, yet you know how to give your kids great gifts. He goes, if sinful dads know how to give good Christmas gifts, it's a paraphrase, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ephesians 5, verse 18, Paul says, quit getting drunk on wine. He goes, you know how to do that at spring break. He goes, what you used to do at spring break, he goes, I want you to do with the Spirit of God. He goes, instead, be continuously filled up by the Holy Spirit. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep asking for more. And so guys, this, this morning, we come to the table of grace, we break the bread, we receive the cup, we go, how does a holy God literally fulfill the promise of Matthew 28? What happens in the cross? It happens in the resurrection. It happens in the return of Jesus. And so Lord, as we keep surrendering, as we keep abiding, as we keep obeying, we come to you and we ask. And so I wanna encourage you this morning, as you receive communion, as you circle up your chairs, to spend some time confessing sin, praying with one another, and then as a group, 
Ask God to pour out his Holy Spirit on our church family in a fresh way in this season. Let's stand together. I'll pray for us. We'll receive communion. If you wanna talk or be prayed over, there's some men and women at the Respond Banner. I'd love to pray with you. Jesus, we love you. And I'm so grateful that the promise is better than a sermon on the promise. God, the words are incapable, incapable of capturing the entirety and the totality of what it is that you've put before us. But Lord, this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we throw ourselves at the feet of the cross and would you just pour out your Holy Spirit on our church family. Lord, help us to surrender. Help us to abide. Help us to obey. And Lord, we just ask, God, give us more of yourself. Give us more of yourself. Give us an awareness of who you are in all that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray and give thanks. And together we say, Amen.